So Nehemiah 13, we read uh, the whole chapter last time. I'm going to pick up the reading again just as a refresh, refresher for us from verse 22. Nehemiah 13, we'll begin at verse 22. This is God's holy word. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joyada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite. And I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor. O oh my God, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, we're picking up again our hearing God's word from Nehemiah chapter 13. And uh, last Lord's Day afternoon, we considered first what we see so clearly in this chapter, uh, a relapsing church, we said. Not merely a lapsing church, not merely the people of God falling into sin, but a relapsing church. The sin of those who had previously committed themselves, covenanted themselves, made vows and oaths before God to do what God commanded in his word. And those same people falling again into the same sins a relapsing church. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. We considered how to relapse after God's blessing, after commitment to the Lord, exacerbates sin. It makes those uh, sins worse than they would be otherwise. And in particular, we considered a relapsing church in three areas mentioned here in Nehemiah 13, the neglect of the Lord's worship, the desecration of the Lord's Sabbath, and the unholy mixing or mingling of the Lord's covenant people. And so three areas 
that not only are just historically true to the account here in Nehemiah, but areas of the Christian life that are central, that the devil uh, loves to attack because he knows that these are particular ways that he can gain entry into the lives of the people of God in the way that Tobiah, the enemy of God, gained entrance into the temples, the temple of God. And so three particular areas that we are to be on guard uh, for sin and relapses into sin. As we watch ourselves carefully with respect to our religion, to our rest, and to our relationships, that we would guard these areas of our lives with God's help. And that if we would sin, that we would be quick to repent and confess those sins. Because we will sin. We walk in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul who said, the good that I don't, I, I want to do, that I don't do. And what I don't want to do, that I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's our prayer as well. We have to take this very seriously on the one hand. If we deliberately keep on sinning, Hebrews chapter 10 warns us, there's no sacrifice left for sin. But for those who do fall into sin and confess and repent, we have the promise of God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we think of a relapsing church and the call to renewed uh, repentance, confession, and new gospel obedience. Uh, But I don't think chapter 13 of Nehemiah is best known for these instances of a relapsing church. Because secondly, we see here in this chapter a ruthless response. The way that Nehemiah responded uh, to these sins uh, in the lives of the people of God. I think this chapter is probably most remembered uh, for the way that Nehemiah responded. And this is a point that is right to be remembered. The ruthless response to sin. We need to remember it. And we see the way that Nehemiah expressed that. The chapter records his displeasure Please, displeasure, verse 8, I was greatly displeased. could be translated, grieved me bitterly. There is a righteous anger against sin. And it is good and right to be displeased with sin. The tears flowed from my eyes because thy law they do not keep. Ephesians 4.26, be angry. And yet do not sin. There is a righteous displeasure with sin. It's wrong to be angry and displeased righteously when we see sin in others, especially in ourselves. Nehemiah, out of that displeasure, issued rebukes. He rebuked sin. Verses 11, 17, and 25 
There are times when we need to say something about sin, and it needs to be rebuked. Proverbs 27.5, better is open rebuke than hidden love. There are times, according to the New Testament, when even elders, leaders in the church need to be rebuked. That's the context of 1 Timothy 5.20. Those who are sinning, and that's elders in the context, rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Elders, ministers, are not simply in the business of rebuking others. There may be times when we need to be rebuked as well. But it is perhaps the further responses of Nehemiah that probably catches people's attention even more. Verse 8, I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. What a picture. Nehemiah, boys and girls, literally went into that room and chucked everything out into the street. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no one, uh, no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. And further with regard to the Sabbath, verse 21, but I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? They, they just did as much as they could. And he said, don't even try that. If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Verse 25, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. I think we can misunderstand some of that language. It's not just some uh, immature uh, brawler losing his temper and taking it out on people. This is not an out-of-control Nehemiah going berserk and physically abusing people. It was corporal. He beat them. When it says he pulled out their hair, I don't think we should immediately think of what comes to mind with that. The word can mean to make clean or to shave. It was probably a shaving of their heads with all that that would mean in the Old Testament context of a of a, a, a visible mark of, of dishonor, disgrace placed upon someone. What are we to make of that? Because certainly uh, we haven't seen that in the church. I hope we haven't seen it in, in the church or in this congregation, that sort of physical uh, response to sin. What are we to make of it? Well, 
We need to remember that Nehemiah's role in Israel in that day was as a civil leader. Israel at that time was both the church and the nation, the body politic, as the confession calls it. And so those things were mingled together. But Nehemiah here is a civil leader. And we think of a passage like Deuteronomy 25, which lays out corporal punishment for, for sin with limits in God's grace that your brother wouldn't be disgraced in your eyes, dishonored, but yet corporal punishment. And so there's that aspect to it uh, as well that I think probably accounts for most of what we're seeing here. When the people have a dispute, they are to take it to court, and the judges will decide the case, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. The guilty person deserves to be beaten. The judge shall make them lie down and have them flogged in his presence with the number of lashes the crime deserves. And so there's that aspect of what's happening here in this response by Nehemiah. I think even within the church, there are times when a more physical intervention is warranted in some cases. I think they're very rare, thankfully, but I think it may be warranted in some situations. If there is some egregious sin occurring and some physical response needs to have it to stop that from happening, hypothetically in some cases I can see that occurring in the church. We need to be very careful about this, but we have the precedent of our Lord himself in John 2.15. And he came into the temple and he saw what was going on. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. There are times when that kind of response is warranted by the nature and the egregiousness of the sin. There have been times, I'm thankful again, even in the history of our own congregation, as I thought of it, where there was an individual or individuals who were coming to be part, to to come into the public worship service for no good. And we were at the point of physically removing them. And that needs to happen sometimes. Our weapons in the church are not the weapons of the world. But in general, I think the lesson here is that sin needs to be dealt with ruthlessly in every biblical and appropriate way. Titus 1.13, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. And the principle remains for us in the face of sin to engage in practical ruthlessness with respect to sin. Sin in the church, corporately, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, 
so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Sin is infectious in the church, and we indulge it and entertain it to our harm and spiritual peril. Get rid of it, Paul says. Get rid of it. And we may not be physically throwing Tobias out of the church, but we need to be getting rid of sin. We need to be following the course of biblical church discipline. And there may be discipline that ultimately, sadly, but necessarily removes people from the fellowship of the church. Even as we pray for their repentance and reclamation unto God and to the people of God. And that seems ruthless to people. But God says it's necessary at times. And of course, I think we see this even more clearly in the Bible personally. A personal ruthlessness with sin. As I was reading through Nehemiah 13, and Nehemiah's response to sin, and reflected on what my response to sin needs to be, then my mind went to Matthew Chapter 5, and maybe your mind went there as well. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Of course, we understand that this word of our Savior is not literal. Peter denied the Lord and was not required to cut out his tongue. But it applies to us spiritually, and it calls for a ruthlessness towards sin in our lives, a gouging out and a cutting off. And I just ask you as I ask myself, what was the last thing that you gouged out? What was the, the most recent time when God's Spirit by His Word compelled you to cut something off? Or was Jesus just speaking hypothetically to no one? I think he was speaking to me and to you. And this is real. And this is necessary. It is better. It is better, said Jesus. A ruthless response to sin. But thirdly, this chapter also, just so clearly, because of the repetition that we see 
marked off in the NIV version to highlight it, verse 14, verse 22, verse 29, and verse 31. A remembering God. A remembering God. And this remembering has two senses to it. As you look at those verses again and your eye just falls over them. One of the remembering is in this category, verse 29. Remember them, says Nehemiah. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. That's what we pray sometimes. Remember them. We are not to take vengeance ourselves. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. And there are times when we wonder about evil people and their evil actions, and they seem to get away with it in this world. But they don't, ultimately. It's not wrong to pray in terms of real evil. Remember it, God. Remember it. Even if they, in some sense, get away with it in this life, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But then three times the remembering is is quite different, isn't it? And it goes from a remembering them to Nehemiah saying, Remember me, O my God. And these notes of calling upon God to remember him highlight to us that what Nehemiah is doing here is God-centered. He punctuates what he's doing with this God-centered call for God to remember him in his actions. What Nehemiah did was not for himself. It was not just to be seen as a zealous reformer for reformation's sake, but it was all done before God. The end of verse 27, he he highlights that, this terrible wickedness. You're being unfaithful to our God. The sin was before God. It is seen to be before God and must be seen that way. And so is all the work of reformation that Nehemiah engaged in. It is before God and for God. The righteousness that Nehemiah exhibited must be with God in view. Verse 14, remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. On the surface, that sounds self-congratulatory, that Nehemiah is just looking for praise for himself, boasting in his faithful work. But the judgment of charity, I think, would say that this is not what was in Nehemiah's heart. There is a parallel to Nehemiah's statement here in the New Testament in Hebrews 6.10. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Because there are lots of things that Christians do in the church and for their brothers and sisters as they serve the Lord in this world. Many things that other people don't see. 
or ignore, things that go unrecognized and unthanked. And there is a righteous way to pray, remember me for this, my God. No one else may see this, but you do. And my reward and my recompense is with you. But we have to look also, lastly, very carefully at what Nehemiah says. And here in verse 22 particularly, Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. The King James here says, And spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Do you see the heart of it? Nehemiah has been ruthlessly dealing with a relapsing church. He's been dealing with the sin in the lives of others. But it never ends there. Remember me, my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. That as we deal with the sin in other people's lives, whatever way that is appropriate for us according to our callings, that we never forget that each one of us is in need of the mercy of God in our own lives. That no one can simply point at others and say, you sinners, without remembering there's no one righteous, no, not one. And so, according to the greatness of the mercy of God, we pray that he would spare us for our sin, the logs in our own eyes. And we pray, remember me. Boys and girls, I wonder if you hear Nehemiah saying to God, remember me, remember me. I wonder if it reminds you of someone in the New Testament, in the Gospels, who once said to the Lord, remember me. You remember? Who said remember? That repentant thief on the cross. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The sins of the people in Nehemiah's day were great. And Nehemiah had his own sin that needed confessing. The Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. For all sinners, for a relapsed people, and even for a reforming leader, there's grace for sinners. God remembers and so should we. When God says in Isaiah 44, remember these things. For you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you. You are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you.